listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanowski. This episode's guest grew up in a big family, and she tells me that it is in this environment that she discovered that there is room for everyone at the table. The table being a place where you are welcomed and received. Reverend Lisa Oliver shares her faith journey, and she begins at the kitchen table and takes me on a journey with pathways of change and searching and transitions. Her journey has her serving at Mount Tabor Cumberland Presbyterian Church and how her life experiences have informed and enriched both her faith and her ministry. Enjoy this faith conversation with Lisa Oliver. Lisa, did you grow up in a big family? Yes, I did. Um, and by big, I mean there were six children, mm. and both parents, and in a tiny house uh, before there were tiny houses. So um, a two-bedroom house with six kids was a bit of a challenge. Um, but my parents were creative and able to uh, figure out how to manage. And I am the second of six children, but the oldest girl. Wow. So it was a creative chaos in the house, I imagine. <laughs> yes, probably not a lot different from um, most families because, you know, Families is chaotic. Um, there's always something interesting happening, but there were just more of us to create chaos. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so you Mom, learned, you learned scheduling at a young age and sharing at a young age. Yes. Yes. There was a lot of sharing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I distinctly remember, and it's a, a funny Christmas story. Now, when I was that age, it was not as funny, but um, I have two sisters and we were given each a Fisher Price baby doll that were just sweet things. And uh, being the oldest, um, sometimes you have to let the younger one have something that you might already have. So uh, I had a, a dark headed um baby doll with bangs that looked like me and also looked like my sister Beth and um she was probably two and a half or something I mean she was young and that was what she wanted she wanted the one that looked like her and I got the blonde doll that didn't look like any of us but it was a different doll so we each had a different doll <laughs> <laughs> so um I do remember sharing that doll and I'm not bitter at all. I don't, I don't hold grudges, <laughs> but I have remembered that forever. <laughs> so it's just, it's a funny story that, uh, you know, you just have to make space for everybody, but that is something else I learned is making space for everyone. There was always room at the table for whoever came over. We always had friends over a neighborhood buddy would come by or, they dad likes to tell the story that they would talk to each other and say, whose mom's got the best meal, you know, <laughs> that's where they'd have dinner or whatever. So, um, so we made room for people. And, uh, 
I think that was that was an important lesson too early. What did family time look like in the evening in the Oliver family? Well, we had a ritual of sitting down at dinner together. Um, Mom made sure that um, that we all sat at the table. We we helped set the table. We helped. Um, Sometimes we help cook and do things. I had others who were more interested in doing that. Like my oldest brother, he liked to cook. And um, I wasn't as interested in that, but I could wash dishes. I could always wash dishes. It wasn't my favorite thing to do, but I knew the job. I could do the job. And <laughs> that's what I did. Um, it's a theme of my life now. So we'll get to that later. But, uh, um, you know, setting the table, sitting around the table, telling our story how our day went um mom would say ray would go off to school and um come back telling his stories and then just moments after that i had all of my stories of where i had been to school but i'd stayed home all day so <laughs> she, she got she would get tickled at how and it probably happened success successfully as the others uh came along that uh, we adopted and adapted our stories to match whatever big brother or a sister was doing so um and dad would come in from working and bless his heart we were just blah 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 blah, blah. just you know i don't know how he did it <laughs> <laughs> worn out and stressed from work and working downtown nashville and uh then riding the bus out to hendersonville and uh coming home and um and mom would have had us all day long and she was how she did it you know she was just uh she was ready to say, I need some help here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that was one of our rituals was to always eat dinner together. And, um, and that was, uh, that was a significant, uh, time, you know, we didn't always get along at the table and, um, <laughs> there was always discipline, but there was careful planning on who sat where. So Beth and Danny sat down by dad. The youngest sat by mom and, and Ray was the oldest. And then Bill and I sat in the middle on either side, the three boys and the three girls on either side of this table. And so I was always helping with passing. <laughs> yeah. And Bill, he was a passer. We always helped with passing. <laughs> it was a divide and conquer, maybe. It was, absolutely was. Absolutely was. So, uh, so you can imagine with all the um, socks and underwear and pants and shirts that had to be washed there was laundry every day uh, just to try to keep up um, and I don't know how many millions and millions of loads of clothes that were washed but <laughs> <laughs> we we didn't have a lot but we we were clean mama kept us clean and and that's fed. good <laughs> that's very good Looking back as an adult, what's the greatest gift of being part of a big family? Um, not being alone. Um, yeah, um, that sense of family and connection to others who had similar experience and, um, you know, we can remember some things together and, and enjoy uh, a lot of good memories, you know, um, running in the yard and playing. We, we had games we could play, you know, then. Um, but and 
I didn't know how special that was. And looking back, I'm like, wow, that was that was pretty special to learn how to play football. I learned how to play football. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how to play baseball and kickball and all those things um, in the big family because there were enough of us to do those things. And, mm. um, and now when we are able to get together, we, we get to laugh and, and share time together. And it's really it's really pretty special to get to do that with a bunch of people. Yeah. There's something to be said for shared experiences. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bonding mechanism to that. It is. It is. It, it is how relationships, uh, it, learning to build relationships in that, uh, <laughs> learning how to get along with each other. That's, oh that's my right. gosh. Play nice. You know? <laughs> yeah. To and toleration by necessity for sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, learning to respect others' boundaries, you know, um, where where we're different, um, but we still love each other, you know, and able to do that. That that may be the greatest gift right there is um, I'm not sure that any of us have done it well, but we at least were exposed in such a way that we had the opportunity to. Um, to learn about what that was and um, trial and error, you know, and then at the same time still feel like we belong together. Right. Right. Yeah. Stretch those boundaries, but still live within them. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, however our personalities develop from there, um, it just, you know, it's it's pretty amazing to look back and go, wow, here we are. And look at what everybody's doing now and how that how that might have been in the works even way back then. So, oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did you grow up in a family that attended church? Yes, my uh, faith journey began at New Hope Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. Um. Now, I live in Hendersonville. And I, I've always gone to church outside of <laughs> Hendersonville. I can't answer why, but uh, but New Hope was my dad's uh, home church. And um, so that's where um, mom and dad were going to church and my grandparents were going to church. And it was a family affair. I, you know, I just told a fib because I did go to church in Hendersonville for a bit Um when we uh, went to the Hendersonville Fellowship and tried to begin um, that church, which is now a church, it is uh, all that sort of stuff. But yes, grew up in the church and um, spent Sundays uh, at my grandparents, you know, for Sunday dinner. And uh, again, some more of that uh, bonding experience, but also uh, learning boundaries and learning how to help and, and, uh, all that good stuff. Well, can you recall a meaningful experience, a meaningful encounter that you've had with God um, in those growing up years? I don't know that I ever knew a time apart from God. Hmm. So um, the Sunday school teachers made uh, learning about God a special joy. Um, Billy Barnett was a, a sweet, beautiful woman 
who took her time and had the nicest voice for little children. You know, she was just perfect for that. Um, and I guess um, probably the most profound time was when I went to church camp um, at Crystal Springs. I learned how simple it was to accept salvation. And I've always made things so complicated in my head. You know, this must be hard, you know. No, just receive the love of Christ and accept that he is your Lord and Savior. And um, I was so terribly homesick that that week. I only went to camp as a camper one week out of my life. <laughs> how old were you? Um, I guess 12, okay. um, sixth grade, somewhere around there. Um, I want to say that's when it was. And, um, so went to camp and learned about, um, how, what, how grace is really so easy to receive. Um, and later joined the church as a result, um, and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that was very meaningful to me because I, I guess I didn't know at the time that I, I wasn't saved as we, you know, we were going to church. So wasn't I a member? Wasn't I, I, I didn't understand what that was. So um, I felt a special closeness to God and especially getting out away from home. And Crystal Springs has always been a beautiful place. And that was a beautiful place to learn how God loves us so much. It's interesting that coupled with home being homesick and your profession of faith was right there next to each other. I don't know what that means, but you know, typically, you know, when we have changes in life, you know, it, it and when we accept changes and transformation, it, it can be in times when things are stable and familiar and yet for you, you know, around fifth or sixth grade, seventh grade, it was being away from your family and your church family. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't made that connection, but that's, that is very interesting. Um, and, it, and I can honestly say I didn't do it out of fear. It was out of just, this is beautiful and I want to be a part of it. Yeah. And that's, I guess I got a little bit of experience of being part of something bigger than my little church family and my family, my not so little family, but <laughs> in my part of the world, you know, a smaller mm -hmm. uh, microcosm yeah. of the bigger world. So and thank you for that. Sometimes maybe it's hearing the message of grace again, but in a different voice. Probably so. You know, maybe yeah. you heard it at church, around yeah. the kitchen table, out in the yard. But those were mm -hmm. familiar voices. But maybe it was a different voice at camp. You could hear it differently. I think, so. I think that's probably true. And um, establishing relationships with adults who, who I, I didn't know at the time, volunteered their time to be there because they wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, it, this is, was important to them. And, and I was important to them. Isn't that amazing that uh, adults 
take a week vacation or more, and they spend it at camp during the hot summer with a bunch of kids. Yeah. And then yeah. There's, there's, some, there's a testament there for those who there do that. There is quite a testament there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's not the Holiday Inn spending time or, you know, no. embassy suites. It's right. It's bunk beds and right. showers that were in another part of the building, you know, part of the camp. You had to go to the shower house. <laughs> that's not. That's a really special thing for um, adults to. Uh, to jump in and say, this is what I want to do with these kids for a week. Well, when you were in high school, what was Lisa dreaming about in terms of her career? I think when I was a senior in high school, I really hadn't, I hadn't thought too much about what to do. I, I thought about being a teacher. Mom had been a teacher and she said, really, could you do something else? Cause you know, <laughs> you don't make much money as a teacher. <laughs> She didn't quite say it like that, but that was kind of, I was like, oh, well, let me think about something else. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to be a banker. That's what dad did. And I, I, that didn't necessarily appeal to me. Um, but I took an accounting class. And Miss Doublefield, bless her sweetheart, made it so interesting to me that I thought I could be a certified public account. I could learn how to be an accountant. Now, what most people wouldn't necessarily know about me, but um, I kind of knew about me, uh, was I was not very good with money and math. Um, didn't seem to register with me. Um, I don't know if we just live in such denial that, you know, <laughs> but I think it's the teacher. I think she made accounting so understandable to me that I said, I can do this. This is something I can do. And there's actually a career with this. So I thought, okay, this is what I'll try. So I get to Vol State, graduate from high school, get to Vol State. And I take an accounting class on a college level with a different teacher. It was not Miss Doublefield. Um, <laughs> maybe I would have done better if it was. And in five weeks, we covered Everything that we had covered for a whole year in high school accounting. And that's when I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing we covered, I didn't understand. And it was a struggle beyond measure at that point. It was in that moment that I knew I had to back up and punt and think along other lines. And what in the world would that be? Yeah, what were what were your options? What were you thinking? I wasn't thinking about much because I was really uh, dumbfounded that I couldn't do accounting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but funny thing was, uh, in high school, I had, for lack of a better word, a vision. Um, I don't know if it would be qualify as a vision, but it seemed to be one for me. I had the image of me standing up at a pulpit preaching. <laughs> I really thought that I was losing my mind slightly. Um, I was concerned about my mental health. And I said, I will never tell anybody that. Um, and also thought, wow, that's a funny trick to play on somebody who despises standing up in front of anybody to speak. 
Um, it was not, although sitting in a family and talking to people, there was a crowd already. It seems like I would have been comfortable with it, but I was not, was not comfortable with anybody looking at me, talking to me, expecting me to present anything. And so I said, well, that's just a joke. So I set that aside and I didn't think anything about it until I couldn't do accounting. And it was funny how that image popped back up in my mind that I had buried and said, that's never coming out. Um, and I then decided to take it a little bit more seriously. Although still, I was like, I just don't know about this. Um, and so as it turned out, when I finally um, felt like I needed to say something about it, Dad was washing dishes and I was drying. And we're standing in the um in the kitchen right in there and said, um, well, Dad, um, what does it feel like to be called? What is that about? And how does that work? <laughs> I sometimes wonder what did he think when that came out of my mouth? <laughs> Not a conversation I think he expected to have. Mom was, um, she was ironing clothes in another room and she heard this. And so <laughs> I think everything just kind of went silent <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> and then words of wisdom came out. Um, well, it's probably not going to feel like um, a burning bush experience. It's probably not going to be something special like that. It's probably not going to be trumpets sounding and blaring and god saying lisa this is what you need to do or big lights or anything like that i said well i would have preferred that um it would have been real clear then right <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little more and the more i think his description was it could be more of a nagging sensation that you uh, know that God is speaking to you and trying to get your attention and you just keep wanting to say, no, I don't think so. That doesn't sound like me. Knock <laughs> on another door. You know? <laughs> and um, then I said, well, I think I need to take this seriously now because that is exactly what I had been experiencing. And so then I told him and mom about what I just shared that you know this was going on. And of course, need a career now so <laughs> <laughs> well i'm trying to uh place myself in the kitchen of your home and what an interesting way to have that conversation because you're facing the sink or maybe you're facing a wall or a window and you can ask these hard uncertain questions without looking in an eyeball <laughs> yeah and then your dad had a lot of wisdom to be able to try to articulate something that uh, maybe he'd never experienced. That's a good way to put it. I thought so. I thought so. it, it was, <laughs> and to be blindsided, I mean, it was, came out of nowhere, I'm sure. <laughs> right. <This is laughs> and like you said, we were, you know, he was facing a window outside and I, I was, you know, just kind of drying dishes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You, you dropped a a big life question on your dad. He just wanted to get done with the dishes and move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> but he took his time and took that 
moment to explore what that was and never once questioned, well, but that would be silly. You couldn't do that. Never said anything of, of that nature. Just said, huh, well, what do we do? You know? And when I talked to mom, she, and as we came and sat together after that, <laughs> I don't remember exactly all that happened, but we, we sat down and talked and said, but I just, I don't feel like I could be a preacher. She said, there's so many things you could do. You don't have to be a preacher, but if God's calling you, this is what you got to go. You know, you got to right. follow it. Well, that, that's funny. Don't become a teacher because you're taking on a vow of poverty, but it's okay for you to be a minister and take on a vow of poverty. Yeah. <laughs> I like that humor. <laughs> yeah, it's very ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, you know, if God calls you to be a, a preacher, then there's nobody that can argue with that, right? You sort of feel like, well, God did that. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you go from there? How did you explore your call to ministry? was then to share with our preacher and it happened to be Alan Jones and he was the minister at um, New Hope at the time and uh, he was a candidate for the ministry. Uh, he had not completed all of his steps toward uh, ministry at the uh, toward ordination but um, had gotten back he had a long story but uh, so my story intersects in his story as a, a candidate and um, Bless his wonderful sweetheart. He, when we came to tell him about what I was experiencing, he just said, oh, yeah, I see it. I was like, you don't know me that well. How can you see that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, I see it. Uh, and so he completely uh, supported me, um, us 100%, because it was a family experience. Mom and dad went with me, you know. When it was time to go to Presbytery, mom and dad went with me to Presbytery to be, um, one, I had to be examined by the um, com committee on ministry, and they were fabulous. Um, I know Steve Louder and Morgan Wallace were on that committee. Um, there were others, but <laughs> those are the ones that I can remember now. Um, and they were 100%. Absolutely. We see it. I was like, Okay, there's nobody saying no, <laughs> you know? which I really, I guess I, I expected that to happen. I didn't expect for the doors to be um, so welcoming and open um, each step along the way. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. You wanted a little bit of resistance. <laughs> that, that's all I really needed was like, okay, he said, he said, no, I'm probably going to have to do something else. <laughs> Well, how did that, uh, you know, because that process takes a little while. How did that change your trajectory? Because you're enrolled at Vol State. And what did that look like? Um, so at that point, as a business major, I uh, had to, um, I didn't have to change majors, but I felt like I needed to change majors. And there wasn't anything to really change to at Ball State. So the next step was, well, what school? Where would I go next? Mm -hmm. um, Bethel was the first school I thought about. Um, it worked out for me to get to go uh, to Bethel. And um, so I could then become a religion major. 
And the reason I thought I needed to do that was I didn't think my um, my knowledge of scripture was strong enough to get get on into seminary. If I had it to do over, I probably would have done a different major and because there was so much duplication in the studies. So, um, but I did religion major, Christian, edu- Christian education minor with the Vera Ramsey at, uh, at Bethel. And that was a lovely uh, educational experience. And she was just fantastic. Um, and actually, I hoped that I would be able to do Christian education uh, and do that kind of um, kind of work as a Christian education director, or even if I did pursue uh, ordination, which I wasn't clear at the time, that's where I was going to, you know, be going. Um, that maybe it would be an associate pastor kind of thing is is sort of where I felt like okay, I, I could accept that. I, I could accept working there with children and youth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it didn't quite yeah. work out that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, which was easier, uh, the accounting classes or your undergraduate studies for religious and Christian education? What came easier for you? Christian education and religious studies. um, I wasn't the best and brightest, but um, those were the areas that I could excel in. I could, um, you know, do... um, literature and read stuff and and write about it a whole lot easier than I could figure out what spreadsheet and how do I a debit a credit of what what (laughs) where in your educational path did you kind of settle into ministry of the word and the sacraments or was it after your educational path it actually was afterward because well let me take that back um one of the meetings with the committee on ministry, uh, the chair of the committee, and I wish I could remember his name, um, but he uh, he gently and forcefully uh, or firmly said, um, you know, you're really going to have to decide if you want to be ordained or not, because that sort of um, impacts what we do here, you know, and I said, and think about that. You know, and it, it, the educational process of, well, I'm just kind of floating through this thing going, I really can't believe this is what I'm doing. And everybody's like, you know, encouraging me to do it. And they see the gifts in me. And I don't know what they see, but I'm just sort of going, OK. Um, but he was able to say this is a this is a pivotal moment where you, you're going to have to decide your your course. and. I didn't see how I should go one way or the other um, clearly. And so I said, well, I'll pursue ordination just kind of matter of factly um, because I wasn't getting any direction otherwise. So I said, okay, we'll try this. And that's sort of, sort of how it went from there. And then that meant, okay, well, I need to go on to seminary and, um, and pursue the educational requirements for ordination as set forth. Okay. So by the, by the time you got to seminary, then you had discovered or sort of grown into that ministry for you is going to be possibly the pastorate. 
at least training wise. Yes, training wise. And pastoral care was becoming a um, a theme for me. It moved from Christian education and toward pastoral care. I was like, ooh, I think I could do this. Uh, what is it about the pastoral care that resonates with you? Um, the more one-on-one conversations with people. And while I kind of like we're doing now (laughs) a lot like it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I could see myself having those sorts of encounters with people. And just while I, I may not know the answers, I was interested in helping people discover those answers. And, um, and it felt like there was a sense of empowering others to be their best self. Um, to help them move through whatever uh, crisis or drama that um, seemed to be uh, causing them pain or whatever seemed to be that it seemed to be a place of curiosity and interest for me at the time so yeah there's some there's a great privilege uh it's pretty humbling to be able to walk alongside of somebody who is experiencing maybe a loss or just some tribulation and not having to do it alone and having someone else there as a guide and someone that you can lean on and throw questions at, throw anger at if necessary. I mean, it's really powerful to be able to, to grieve and experience joy along with someone else. And you describe it well, it is an honor and a privilege to to walk alongside somebody whatever their circumstances yes one of the aspects of pastoral care uh even today there can be an emphasis on well that means chaplaincy you know Mm -hmm. pastorate chaplaincy and now counseling so were those options afforded to you Were, were they available as you're kind of walking through seminary and studying and you found this area of great interest that kind of matches your gifts. And they do, by the way, the times well, I've been you. around you. <laughs> but again, we, we've kind of had a theme here in terms of uh, a vocation and a career. So what was available to you? What, what, what were you experiencing? What options did you have at that time? Well, in the Cumberland Church, there were uh, a few... Um, associate pastors um, available as far as um, positions in the church. Uh, and that was becoming a little more, um, I don't want to say the word available because I'm not sure they were available to me because the people coming out of seminary with me were being hired to do it. And they weren't, it wasn't me. <laughs> mm. It were, They were men. I don't know if that was uh, just because or what I, I don't, I don't need to know what all that was, but I know I did talk to some folks about associate pastorates and well, they let's, went a different let's live, let's live here for just a minute. Um, so as you're finishing up seminary, what is it like to be, you know, applying for positions and roles and seeing them, seeing them being filled, but they're not being filled by you in terms of your call? You know, what was that like at that time? Well, that was a very uh, 
challenging place to be because I was like, well, now everybody has been so open and welcoming and encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I managed to um, accomplish the goals and I have, you know, reached um, all of my credentials. Mm -hmm. And now what? Um, Of course, that's when God's working overtime, trying to help you get where you need to go, (laughs) talk to you and try to help you. And so, um, you know, I went to one interview and I was not um, prepared for it to be an interview because it was, we're just going to talk. I had not understood that meant you need to be ready to be interviewed. Hmm. Um, So that was my naivete as a youngster um, and other, probably other things but anyway um so i didn't make a very good impression on that run and then the next one i was prepared for an interview and um was told flat out we're not ready for a woman to be uh, i mean one of the elders in the interview said it uh we're not ready for a woman to be um in the pulpit for any reason so i said okay this is not for me right <laughs> at least there was um, some transparency there Honesty, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, I hope it's changed for him, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know that it has. But um, so, you know, reality is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I um, had conversations with um, folks who uh, the pastoral care um, professor at the time was Kathy Reed, and she was able to um, direct me to the possibility of chaplaincy. Um, and to do CPE maybe for a year, um, it could give me time to develop my pastoral identity and um, maybe make me a stronger candidate for whatever was next. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's more school, but okay, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> um, so I pursued that and um, had a, she knew of an opening that developed and I could jump into a, a group and went through all the application process and they accepted me and that was the next step was cpe mm-hmm. and so um at that point uh the committee on ministry of murfreesboro presbytery then they fe- they felt like that was a call it was i had all the other credentials and i, I was receiving some money for it so um they ordained me all right and um so (laughs) let's think about your relationship with god at this time so you've been equipped with all these wonderful gifts you've been trained you're ready to be cut loose and share all these new ideas and techniques and methods to help people heal and come to know christ and deepen their faith and for the first time, there was some closures or the doors weren't quite as wide open, metaphorically speaking. How did that impact your faith? Well, um, it caused me to trust deeper um, because I really could not believe anything other than God had prepared me to do something while I have no idea what that something is going to be (laughs) uh, and can't see 
past the end of my nose on some things, you know, I'm like, well, I don't see how this is going to go good, God, but uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really was a time to, uh, to, to trust deeper and to know that God had me and didn't bring me this far to just say, well, okay, it's over. It's been fun. Um, that's not who God is. Um, and so I learned more about how God opens the right doors at the right time, even if they're not all flying wide open, you know, um, talking to, to friends, you know, about it and just praying with folks who were willing to say, we don't know what's going to happen either, but we know God is, is calling you to something. It's just a matter of, of discerning what it is, which I, you know, I wasn't aware of what discerning was, you know, I don't guess I was as aware of it as I am now that, you know, it's a process of, of opening up to God and being willing to go where God is leading and not being the one running ahead of God and saying, Oh, I know where I got to go right here. Right. That's a totally different posture for sure. Yeah. It's yeah, a hard one a- too, especially if we have our own ideas and dreams. <laughs> enough to pull back and say okay I'm I don't see it so t- show me where it is because it's it's not looking like what I thought it would look like where were you and when was that moment when you actually felt fulfilled in your call and ministry the first time situated in a hospital setting and on more than one occasion, I, I, I was able to establish relationships with um, nurses and staff at the hospital and um, began to look at who I am as a pastor, you know, as a person of, of um, clergy material, whatever it is, that's a weird thing to say. Um, But I began to see myself as someone who was a caregiver, uh, who who could join in on this team of folks. And it wasn't just me, it was all of us working together and they did their part. They could do the physical, they could do the um, assessing of the needs, from all different angles and they wanted me to come in and a lot of times they wanted me to talk to them and get things straightened out but my job was not to talk my job was to listen and so I was the listener and I would come in and I would find out about them and and have a conversation and in those moments that I felt I felt God using me to help this person it was an incredible joy to go, wow, this is, this is what I get to do. Mm-hmm. This is what you want me to do. Um, and as I got affirmation after affirmation that this and confirmation that I was gifted in these areas, um, it was a, it was a longer process than the last 30 seconds that I described, but it was, <laughs> um, it was pretty incredible um, that I could be present with and, I've shared with you that I'm a free crier. So it was really surprising to me that in those moments that I would be with somebody, if I saw someone else cry, I usually would cry. 
-hmm. But when I was there as chaplain, by the grace of God, I could be present without ugly crying with them all the time. (laughs) There were times I did cry, but I was I was shocked that I could be a, a calming presence while they were maybe doing their ugly crying that they needed to do. That's I'm not laughing that you're crying. I'm laughing at the phrase ugly crying. What what is ugly crying? You know, you can have the little sweet tears that run down and you can dab gently and get rid of them. But ugly cries when everything's running and you're just all the sinus, everything that can run out of your sinuses runs out and you just can't catch it all because there's not enough Kleenex. That's ugly crying because you're just <laughs> sobbing and and carrying on, it seems like you just can't get control of yourself. You lose that control, which, you know, we <laughs> we struggle so much to need that control. So, right. yeah, that's that's ugly crying. Ugly crying. All right. Just really letting it go. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's very much therapeutic and needed. And, you know. All right. <laughs> we, we sometimes only allow ourselves to do that cathartically at movies. You know, you have to sit quietly somewhere by yourself and watch a movie that helps you to release all that and ugly cry because you won't go talk to somebody about what you need to talk about. You've spent a big part of your ministry as a hospice chaplain. What brings you or what brought you the greatest joy in being a hospice chaplain? You know, knowing I made a difference every day. That was probably my greatest joy. I I made a difference in somebody's life, maybe more than one somebody's life uh, in a day's time. Um, We couldn't fix anything. There wasn't anything that could be fixed. We could make it more comfortable, but we knew the inevitable would happen. And so I I didn't ever see myself as a going to be a hospice chaplain. And it was um, suggested to me after um, I got through with CPE that I should look into hospice. And I refused to do that for a while and um, had a dream while I was in Memphis that I would eventually open my own daycare and care for children because, you know, that seemed more like what I was interested in doing and that sort of thing. and. Uh, unfortunately, there were several deaths um, in uh, the child care industry where people were, were leaving children on buses or whatever. And I said, we could do better than this. And I, maybe I can do better than that. And I um, moved back home from Memphis and went to work at a daycare. And God said, yeah, you can do that. Sure. Go ahead. And I did for a little bit and taught two-year-olds uh, during that time and um, in whatever other group that I, they needed me to help with. Um, and I learned that I had to say no too many thousand times a day and I had to change too many diapers too many thousand times a day. So I said, I'm not sure my gifts are really here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here, Lord. <laughs> and of course, God said, I know. But... So <laughs> in the meantime, a position at a hospice became available. And I had an um, incredible experience sitting at the table with my dad um, talking about 
our financial situation was not uh, get, being met. Um, and we were struggling with lots of things. And I said, Lord, I know this, you got something else for me to do, but I don't know how you're going to fix all this, but we need you to fix it, please. <laughs> <laughs> Within moments of that um, prayer, where we prayed about everything under the sun, Within moments, I had a call from a friend. And back when we had answering machines that would answer, it would pick up on the second ring if it had a message. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one of those and I, I heard it ring and it rang twice. And I said, I have a message. Well, I was very obsessive about checking my messages, make sure I didn't miss something. And that's that's a whole nother mental health issue. But anyway, <laughs> just would say that to say um I would have checked that normally, but on that particular day, I didn't check my messages. I was in this conversation with God, and apparently that was more important, and I was thankful for that. So I went to answer the um, the call, literally, um, and listened, and it was my buddy, um, Joel, who was working at a hospice company. He, he knew I was looking for a job. And he said, we have an opening. You need to call me now. I've been trying to reach you all day. And I went, what? (laughs) So he had left me a message earlier in the day. I had not gotten it. And I wasn't supposed to get it, apparently. And um, so I called and um, he gave me the info. I called the next day and arranged for an interview and arranged at uh, the daycare to be gone for that period of time. And ran in the next day and did the interview. Um, and I we talked for two hours in that interview that only felt like a few minutes. Hmm. I never have I had an interview like that. <laughs> and it was just the perfect setting. The you know, I was the person they were looking for, they were the people I needed. And I finally understood hospice was about transitions. Mm. And I had been working with children and parents in transitions. And that's how God used that experience to help me get ready to go to the next day. (laughs) Wow. Um, It also helped that, oh, there was a TV show. Goodness. Angels, Roma Downey Jr., or Roma Downey, uh, what's her name? Anyway. Was it Touched by an Angel? Touched by an Angel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, um, Touched by an Angel was it. That was um, big at that time and was very much a very special show that I enjoyed. And it also helped me to visualize transitions. Um you know, whatever you believe about what actually happens. It was meaningful to me because I was like, oh, okay. And so I went into hospice ministry understanding better that it is a transition. And then I learned that it is also very holy. It is a very holy time, much like birthing is holy also this transition from the physical life that we understand into eternal life that we don't understand that is a mystery to us 
And wow, I could be there to help make it more comfortable and less painful and hopefully engage in some holy and sacred ritual or experience that made it better through prayer, through presence, and even sacrament. How long have you been a hospice chaplain? A cumulative of 12 and a half years. Okay. But not right. consecutively, but cumulatively. Good. I have some questions for you. Good. <laughs> As a hospice chaplain, how do you divide your attention among the individual, the family, and even the, well, the caregivers, even the professional caregivers? How do you read the room? Usually the person is addressed. That we address the physical with the person, the patient. Um, we got to make sure they're not hurting too bad to be able to be either present or relaxed and resting. Um, and then the caregiver is is would be the next person, whoever is um, listed as the primary caregiver, and then you um, then you learn who is in relationship to this patient and how. And so it depends on how many people in the room. And then then after that would be the the nursing staff at a different point in time. Um, we would spend time together debriefing what had happened. Uh, sometimes in the team meeting, we would do that. And sometimes um, maybe standing outside, you know, at the car, getting ready to leave. We'd talk a few minutes and and share it. Um, so it was something like that. That was kind of the general formula. When you were a hospice chaplain, what did it teach you? What did it tell you about life and death? Life is so fragile. And if I didn't get anything else, it is much shorter than we, than we really realize. Um, we take for granted. Um, oh, well, I'm just going to live until whenever. And then, um, you know, in our 80s or 90s is when we expect to be heading uh, toward our heavenly home. Um, and then we would have um, young patients who um, had severe disease that would cause them to uh, have a limited lifespan. And um, I hope. I learned how to appreciate the little things in life a little more. Um, I want to say taking care of myself is probably the the area that I struggle with the most is providing myself the self-care that I need. And I would see these patients who worked hard and did everything they were supposed to do right. And uh, they would still get a disease that was so horrific. So um, I don't know that I would take from that that you don't take care of yourself, but um, we really, yeah, we really should. Yeah, I didn't think that was a message you were trying to convey. Right. That's, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the the little things in life, and take time to do the things you really want to do. Um, you know, we laugh about having a bucket list. There's nothing funny about that at all 
you know, mm-hmm. do the things on your bucket list. If you, if it's at all possible to do, mm-hmm. uh, it is not a dress rehearsal and, you know, this is our one life to live. What about death? Not scared of it. Like I was at one time. I think I was scared because I thought there were, I thought death was the worst thing that could happen. And that was just my limited view. And then when I saw how disease robs people of their mobility or robs people of their ability to think uh, and be the person they, um, they once were, I knew there were worse things than death. And so while I'm not scared of those diseases, I know that death is not a scary place. One, because I'm, I'm assured of where I'm going and I feel good about that. Um, so there's that reality, but just the, the whole thing of death being scary, it's, it's not scary to me. A hospice chaplain, I've, I don't know how to, well, I won't share my feelings of the term, but you have a caseload. So how, how do you prepare yourself as you go from visit to visit, from individual to individual? Because I would imagine that some of those visits could be very mentally and spiritually draining, and yet yes. you have to bring your best right. and bring grace and the good news to the very next visit. Yes. How did you do that? I am not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's like anything else. You you take it um, as it comes, the best way you can. Um, and each situation was going to impact you differently. I believe if I knew each one of these um, individuals and families personally before I met them, before we were at this place in hospice, I think it would have taken a, a greater toll on me. But to come in as a stranger and to just walk into what I already knew was the situation. We didn't know them when they were struggling to get the disease or get the diagnosis they needed in order to get the help that they needed in order and then end up in this place. So all of that had taken place. And we just walk in in this last moment and and said, we're here to help. Mm. And so um, by the grace of God, using your gifts. When you work in your gift, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like you're just showing up and God is doing the work. And then you, you know, walk away. Yes, you are impacted. And yes, you go eat a donut sometimes. And <laughs> yes, you go have milkshake. Um, or you sit with your coworkers and you grieve together that, you know, this was especially hard or this was um this impacted me because I had somebody like that in my life or, you know, um, I, I remember some very special patients that I, I still hear some of their favorite songs and I think of them and mm, it just, wow. um, you know, um, I, I would go and sing hymns a lot of times. And one of my very special patients, um, she said, it sound when you sing it's, I hear little bells. It feels like little bells ringing. And I was like, Oh, that's the sweetest thing. So I still remember that. And I bring that with me. And, um, and she still, her smile just still, you know, is emblazoned. And I, I'm going to look forward to seeing her again one day, you know, we're going to, 
we're gonna sing together and we're and she's gonna be able to sing because she said she couldn't and now she's gonna be able to sing and um you know special things like that i i think those moments help us get through those others that are so gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and special special people that i work with oh my gosh they were so wonderful and we could we could share and pray together and debrief and pick up our bootstraps and go again. <laughs> <laughs> what kept you from becoming desensitized to sickness, transition, and death and loss? If you see it every day, I would imagine that it could potentially have less of an impact. And, you know, I, for mental health, I think it, you would need to chew on it on little pieces at a time so you're not overwhelmed. But on the other extreme, how do you prevent from becoming desensitized? Well, without really good boundaries, without a little bit of therapy, <laughs> without all of those things in place and accountability with your, your team, um, you certainly can become desensitized. And I can't say that at those last, those last months when I was working in hospice that I wasn't desensitized. I wished I could say, mm. but mm. it had become, it was my sign that I needed to move on. It was time to do something else. Okay. <laughs> um, and, but we do have to pay attention to that. It is a, I don't think 12 years is the norm for folks um, in hospice. When I first entered hospice at work, they were saying that two years was the normal lifespan of a hospice worker in hospice. Mm. And uh, so to go 12 years, even though it wasn't consecutive, was pretty, pretty big. So You serve the Mount Tabor Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Middle Tennessee. So how has all your life experiences and your education and your previous vocations informed your ministry at Mount Tabor? Everything I have done, God has used in this work in, at Mount Tabor. Even changing um, diapers. Even well, I haven't had to change diapers, but I can if I need to. <laughs> I don't know why that one came to my head. <laughs> I think, I think our conversation got a little heavy, and so this was a way for me to lighten it up momentarily. Comedy is a great thing. I love it. <laughs> laughter is great medicine. That's another thing. You know, we we need laughter. Mm -hmm. um, I I really have felt strongly that. All none of my life experience and um, work history, going and doing all kinds of different things, trying to you know make a living, um, and education, none of it has gone to waste. That it has shaped me and prepared me for this moment in my life to be ready to do this. Um, <laughs> I can't say how each thing plugs in as it does, but I. I I wondered about uh, several years ago that, oh my gosh, I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm going so many different directions. I don't feel like I'm really doing all that God means for me to do. And and what about all these different side roads that I've been on? <laughs> and it has dovetailed until 
all that I have done. And some of it has been great for sermon preparation to tell stories, you know, <laughs> because I think I could write a book. I just don't want to right now. <laughs> um, from the experiences, well, I'm putting those into um, sermons because God will say, well, look, you can bring this here. It bears on that. And that has been such of the many joys of serving Mount Tabor Church. That has also been a joy to see how God says, you know, it was it wasn't for nothing. You, you're doing this. And, and here you are now that you finally agreed to go preach now and you've tried everything else and i've said go ahead try it god has brought it together and said here you can use this here this can be um it's it was a blessing then and it's a blessing now so lisa where do you see or experience god's presence today this morning before we even got online well God is so busy in my life right now uh, that I am trying to quantify <laughs> something that has just been so amazing lately. Um, I have gotten to hold newborns recently, two or three all in the same week, you know, two or three times in the same week. And I said, oh, my goodness, when has that happened? Um, what a joy that is. Um, I'm experiencing a lot of joy and amazing blessings that if you can only say and know that God was moving certain things to happen the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, let me back up just a little bit and tell about some hard times. Um, losing mom this last year uh, in July was ex exceptionally hard, as you might imagine. Um, we have um, always supported and been um, amazed at what Sacred Sparks is doing with Lisa Cook and um, the things that they are accomplishing. And they recently, um, and when I say recently, in July, it felt like recently, uh, had partnered with St. Luke Cumberland Presbyterian Church to move their laundry ministry into the church and serve in the church. Well, mom was very, very proud of that move and that connection. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier, she washed a lot of clothes <laughs> with all of us. And so what we wanted to do to honor her was to um, ask for donations to be made to Loads of Love in her memory. And um, she had washed so many uh, loads of love of her own. and. Um, and so we wanted that in lieu of flowers because flowers are just so gorgeous, but they're short lived. And, um, we love flowers, but we knew this would be, have a more lasting impact and a, a beautiful way to share, uh, love. So we, we received, or they received several donations, um, for her. And, um, Lisa asked me, what were her favorite foods? Because we want to we want to share some of her favorite foods uh, for the three weeks that they had gotten donations to cover. And so we talked about those. And then I said, well, Lisa, dad and I would like to come volunteer um, and help during those three weeks, you know. And uh, 
She said, oh, that'd be lovely. Just come on down and you can help. And so we did. Um, and we hadn't stopped. Uh, we're still doing this. Dad found an awesome way to spend some of his time sharing with folks who uh, need a hand up and need a meal. And um, he goes and he pours the tea and gets the ice ready for the cups and all that good stuff. And I go down and I wash dishes. <laughs> I do a lot of dishwashing. I was prepared for this early in life. So. <laughs> And we have so much joy getting to serve um, and being helpers. We are helpers. And there is um, there's blessing in that beyond words. It helps us to do, helps us to have some hands-on time in ministry, helping someone else do a bigger thing than what we could do on our own. Um, and we have just had the best time doing that. And in that, I've gotten to hold newborns and um, see the light in other people as they receive a good meal and um, and honor my mom that way, remembering how she served all the meals that she served us and took care of us and didn't ask questions. It was just, this is what we do. And so I feel like I'm living some of that and it has helped in the grief process, helped me heal in a, an ongoing process that is, you know, <laughs> that I talked about for years and years and years. And now here I am living it in a way that I didn't, didn't know I would have to mm. this way. Yeah. In the way that you are, it's different when you were the one receiving care. Or in yes. need of care. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's humbling, but it's also real. Mm -hmm. And um, and I have been so touched by the outpouring of love that we've received. And um, the random text messages that people would just send, say, I'm thinking about you. Oh, my gosh, that helps so much. Um, cards. Um remembering special days um, and that sort of thing. It's the kind of thing that I try to do, you know, with the folks uh, that I've known and through um, friendships and all, but to, to receive it is to go, wow, it really does help. Wow. Look, this is what it is, you know? <laughs> so that's what it feels like. you know. So you've been open and receptive to acts of love from others. Is it hard to open up? Um, get to a certain point where you have to, mm -hmm. or you're not going to be well. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, but it wasn't terribly hard. The hard part was losing Mama and losing Uncle Reed, and we just lost somebody else. But you know, those were the hard things. The opening up and being receptive was just thank you, God. Thank you for sending somebody to remind me and love beyond words that um, that you got me, Lord, through these this community of faith, through friends that are, are fabulous human beings and um, such a wide variety of people that I'm connected to. And, and then just being able to go and do the work, you know, just 
let me just go and help somebody, you know. Lisa, you were born, literally born into the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Grew up in it. Received a call to ministry in it. Let's look to the future. What what hopes do you have for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? Where would you like? Where do you see it going? I have been so encouraged lately. Um, you know, we all have to wear 15 different hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would what I would like to see is that there would be enough people in the Cumberland Church that you and I wouldn't have to wear 15 different hats. And that all of our uh, colleagues and all we could we could share <laughs> in the work uh, that is required to have a denomination and keep it going. Um, that we could um, have multiple uh, friends and layers of folks that were working and doing this work. Um, I hope it's going that direction. I hope we can uh, pivot from maybe where we are to a uh, a broader group of folks in the church um so and the way i've been encouraged was working in the cumberland presbyterian women's uh committee executive committee as the secretary and i've been privileged to go to the nolichucky region and also to the forky deer region just in the last couple of weeks um and meet some phenomenal people i was re reunited with some folks and friends over in the West Tennessee area at Fork of Deer and then Nola Chucky, Nola Chucky, excuse me, um, was just a whole new group of folks. And uh, wow, some lovely human beings who are doing some amazing work. And um, I'm just excited that we're just, we keep going, you know, that God just keeps using us and um, I'm growing personally, and I would love to see that that um, that as we grow spiritually and personally, and you know, in these relationships, that we might um, expand numbers of us. So, all right. Before we close this conversation out, I don't want to skip over when we were communicating, you know, offline to be able to sort of coordinate this. You had mentioned a new hobby or gift or activity that you've picked up in uh, crochet crochet so uh, tell me tell me how you ran into this new i don't is it an activity is it a hobby um i, I had always wanted to crochet and i thought that i had to take a class to learn how to do you know somebody's going to teach me how to do this um, so it was always on my mind, I need to take a class. I, I never could find a time to take a class. Well, as a hospice chaplain, I had the opportunity to meet this woman who at 96, though she had struggled with memory issues, she never forgot how to crochet. And she was crocheting and making scarves and doing all sorts of things like that mostly scarves but doing the regular thing but she made blankets and things and i thought well it was one of her three most important things and so that was one of the things we would address on every visit is i would talk with her about crochet and i thought well maybe she could teach me and then i thought well maybe 
out to learn a few of the little basics so that when she was telling me about it, I wouldn't be going, now, what is that? How does that work? Um, and didn't have to ask a lot of questions. So I looked up a YouTube video and I looked at it and watched it. And, and before I knew it, I was doing a little stitch here and there and I was making something. And I said, oh, my goodness. Um, it didn't look real pretty at first, but uh, <laughs> but I did it. And in a little bit, I w- I made a granny square. And um, like I said, the first one was not necessarily a square, but um, you take the stitches out and you go back and do them again. And I said, you know, this was becoming also therapeutic for me. And I said, ah, this is nice. This is being still and letting God take care of me and fill my cup again and being able to look at something and try to replicate it and and do it with my hands and move that way and after I spent this little bit of time working on that I would have something to show for it which there are times in life where you go what have I done what have I got to show for my life well, I probably, if I were to think about it, could write down a few things and say, I, I have this to show for my life. But now I can say, I have this to show for my life, this blanket that um, I made for my uncle. Um, he and my dad, I've made little veteran type uh, honorary things to, you know, little, it, not really a flag, but flag resemblance of it. Um blankets and he was uncle reed was so proud of that flag or that flag that blanket that he put it on one of his beds and he left the note with it that it was from me and when he was struggling with his memory so much he could go and look at that and he knew that he was loved and that we honored his uh, work in the military and so um i got to do you know i've I found a place in me that I didn't know existed, that I could do this, had this skill, and it actually came from my my grandmother, who I didn't get to know. She passed away before I was born, but uh, mom said, oh, yeah, she used to crochet all the time, and she, mom said, I could chain, but I never could figure out how to crochet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was a neat connection there, and that was five years ago when I learned, so, you know, you can... You can teach an older dog new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it may just be another form of your giving. You you are a very giving person. So oh, thank you. You're able to give something tangible, physically tangible as well, beyond the pastoral care and the spiritual care and the faith guidance. Lisa, thank you very much for sharing your faith and and your life journey with me. We have been coordinating this conversation for probably about two years. I'm glad we were able to finally get together and for me to learn more about you. Well, thank you so much, TJ. This has been a special joy, and I've really enjoyed getting to just talk with you for a little while. Thank you for listening to The Cumberland Road. To hear more faith journeys like Lisa's, follow Cumberland Road on Apple Podcast and Spotify. To close this podcast, I'll read from poet and minister 
Rev. Joyce Merritt, in her book, Naked Before God, A Journey into Light and Life. Joyce writes, Once while working in a chaplaincy program that I needed to complete my seminary training, I complained about the constant state of transition in which my life seemed to move. There was a retired gentleman in our training group who was an experienced psychologist. I valued his wisdom and his life experience. So I asked him, when does this life transition stuff stop? And he responded honestly and wisely with copious peals of hearty laughter. I got the point. Thank you for listening.